I was looking around this week and I was realizing just how many clocks I have that tell the time. There's an alarm clock next to my bed as I wake up. There's a clock in my car. There's a clock in my office, in my kitchen, on my wrist, on my phone. I always know what time it is, but my wife Nancy could tell you that there seems to be an internal clock right in here that runs a little bit faster than all the clocks that are around me. I'm always in a hurry. I'm very impatient. Sometimes I tell the staff here at church something I need done, and they'll say, okay, Nathan, when do you want that done? And I'll say, yesterday. I'm always in a hurry. Sometimes that serves me well. I'm proud of the fact that when it was time to work on my doctoral dissertation, I turned it in months before the deadline. Who does that? (laughs) On the other hand, sometimes it really hurts. You can ask Nancy about this, like when we've agreed, say, to get in the car and leave at, say, 6 o'clock. When it's like 5.48, I'm anxious. Why isn't everyone in the car? And Nancy said, we said six. So sometimes it drives the people around me crazy. I'm not very good at waiting. I'm very impatient, which is why I need the season of Advent, the season of waiting, which is what we are observing right now at Stanwich, the four weeks leading up to Christmas It reminds us of our brothers and sisters years ago who waited long for Jesus to come the first time. And it reminds us that we are waiting for him to come once again. We are in a season of waiting. Last Sunday, we heard the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 21, and he showed us what to watch for. I used the analogy of me waiting as a kid for my dad's car to pull into the church parking lot. I memorized the headlights on the car, looking for his car to come. And Jesus taught us last week what to watch for in this world when a great battle will take place between evil and good. We'll watch for that. We'll know he's coming. And today in Luke chapter 3, we hear the words of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist tells us how to prepare the way. For the coming of Christ. In other words, how to conduct ourselves, what to do with our time. If it was just up to me, I would just have nervous, anxious energy because I'm so impatient. But John shows us what to do with our energies as we wait for Christ to come back, how to prepare the way for his arrival. I want to show you what John the Baptist teaches us about this, but first I have to give some context for the story, the historical context, the setting in which John the Baptist preached. The setting is actually written right here by the gospel writer Luke in the first couple of verses of our reading today. He gives us, he names all the people in political and religious power at the time of John the Baptist. Did you hear that as Kathy read it? Let's look at it again. Some of these names should be familiar to us. It says this in the first verse, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar was the son of Caesar Augustus. This is the most powerful man in all the world. It's in the 15th year of his reign. Pontius Pilate, does that name sound familiar? We're going to see him later in the story, aren't we? Later in the Jesus story, being governor of Judea and Herod, you know, Herod, charming king that he was, being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip. Now, Philip is mentioned by um, Josephus, the ancient historian, as the only person of righteousness on this whole list. There's a lot of corruption in this list of people. Philip, tetrarch 
of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis. Good job pronouncing all those, Kathy. That was impressive. And Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during, and now, so he's named all the political powers. Now he gets to the religious powers during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, it's hard for me to overstate, it's hard for me to explain just how scandalous and sensational a paragraph like this would have sounded to its original hearers in the ancient world. Luke mentions all these people in power, the kings and queens and religious leaders, and he says the word of God came not to them, but to this wild-haired, wild-eyed, crazy preacher out in the wilderness, running around like a madman. Now, I want to put this in contemporary ter- terms just to have us feel how sensational this might have sounded. So if this was written today, it might have sounded something like this. In the time when Donald Trump was in the Oval Office, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, Pope Francis was in the Vatican, and Joel Osteen was the most popular pastor. The word of God came to Pastor Julio out in the desert somewhere near the Mexico-United States border. Pastor Julio. Pelosi, I know. Osteen, I've heard of. But who is Pastor Julio and where is he? Now, if that scenario sounded politically loaded... So did this one from Luke, chapter 3, when he names all these people in power, and he says the word of God came to this weird, unknown, foaming-at-the-mouth preacher out there in the desert with some kind of agenda on his mind. That's how it would have sounded in the ancient world, and the question might have been, who is John? It's interesting, one of the commentaries noted when you said Tiberius Caesar, everyone would have said son of Caesar Augustus. And he names John son of Zechariah. It's like, who's this guy? And who's his dad? Nobody knows this guy. So the question might have been, who is this? And the next question might have been, well, then what is he saying out there? If the word of God bypassed the thrones and the temples and went to this man in the wilderness, what's God saying out there? Those with ears to hear would have asked that question, and Luke tells us exactly what the word of God was that came to this preacher in the wilderness. Verse 3, we pick up the story. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, Of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's what God was saying through John out in the wilderness. Now when I read that, there's a line in there that immediately leaps off the page that I kind of wonder about. Make his paths, make the Lord's paths straight. It seems to be in contrast with the verse that I memorized when I was in confirmation class. Some of you parents in the room with your kids in confirmation, they're going to have a memory verse of their own. My memory verse was from Proverbs 3. Some of you know it. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He will make my, that makes sense to me. If I trust God, if I give him my heart, if I lean on him, he'll make my path straight. But then John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That seems strange to me. Why would I make God's path straight? In order to understand it, I, I think of the idea that someone's coming over. When my in-laws come over, what do I do? Straighten up. <laughs> I make straight their path. Maybe some of you know what that feels like. Someone's coming over to the house. What do you do? You make their path straight. You clear up the laundry or whatever. You clean up the place. It's a little bit like that, but I think it's probably more like a king is coming. A king is coming. Let's do what we can to prepare our spaces for the arrival of this king. It's more than just picking up laundry. It's really cleaning up our act because the king is coming. That's what John is saying. Jesus is coming. Now, John was proclaiming this out in the wilderness, waiting for the first coming of Christ, the Messiah, to come and all that he would do for salvation. But we have the same message coming to us through the generations by the Holy Spirit. Christ is coming back. The king is coming to our space. Make straight his path. And John uses this language from Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. We continue in verse 5. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked, maybe he was talking about some of those people in power. The crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is borrowing language from Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote these words many generations previous. And he was using this as a metaphor. The mountains will be brought low and the valleys will be raised up and the crooked paths will be made straight. He's using an illustration. He's using a metaphor for injustices being made right. When Isaiah wrote the words, the Israelites were being treated unjustly. They were under the thumb of oppression of the Babylonians. The Israelites had been ripped from their homes in Jerusalem, literally. And they had been traipsed across the desert, up mountains and down valleys and through crooked paths. And now they were slaves in Babylon. They were captives in Babylon. A great injustice had been done to them. And Isaiah proclaims to them a message of hope, saying, one day, God will bring the mountains down. He'll bring the people in power who are oppressing you down. And he'll bring you who are being oppressed up. And he will make straight the path. He will bring justice where there is injustice happening. This was a word of hope when Isaiah first used it. And John hearkens back to it here. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King also cited the same passage from Isaiah when he saw injustice happening right here in the United States of America. When he saw people in power still oppressing people out of power, we all know the speech, I have a dream. We know the line, I have a dream, that one day my children won't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. 
Well, the line he follows that line with, he says, I have a dream that one day every valley will be filled up and every mountain made low and the crooked places will be made straight. Martin Luther King Jr. used the same language from Isaiah to describe injustice and the righting of wrongs. And John also laces this justice message with a salvation message. It begins in that verse 3 that says he's running around the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So he's saying repent, and he's sharing the good news of forgiveness. And it ends with him saying all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But in between those two salvation messages, he's talking about justice. We've gotten a little bit confused on this in our time. I've noticed in our country. We've set up this false dichotomy between these two messages. The salvation message, the good news, the gospel, and the justice message. It seems that the the liberal church has taken social justice on, and the conservative church has kept the gospel. We talk about saving souls, and we have this weird false dichotomy that would have been a surprise to John the Baptist, who preached both. Prepare the way of the Lord. When we're waiting for his arrival, we proclaim the gospel, the good news, baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and raising up the valleys, bringing down the mountains, making straight the crooked paths, looking for places in our society where injustices are being done. As we wait for the arrival of Christ, we fight against injustice while we share the gospel. We don't need to have a false dichotomy on this. I think here at Stanwich, we're doing a pretty good job of this, actually. We proclaim the gospel here week after week. We point to the cross. We talk about what happened there. And we do a lot of missions work that does look for places where injustices are happening in our region and in our world. We serve the plate of rice to the hungry person. And we say, this is given to you in Jesus' name. You see, it's justice and salvation. And I was trying to think of a good story, a good illustration that would show person or a ministry or a situation who really got this right to prepare the way of the Lord to wait for his arrival to make straight his path we fight for justice and share the gospel and I thought of my grandfather I have a picture of him here for you this is my grandpa Carl Hart my middle name is Carl I was named after him and I inherited a lot of his personality and his gifting And he's really happy here. You can see he's about to officiate the wedding of his eighth child. That's my Aunt Ruth. My dad is one of eight. And uh, you might remember my grandmother, his wife, we sang her hymn at the installation service. Yeah, this is my grandpa, Pastor Carl. And he was a Southern Baptist Convention preacher in rural Virginia. And in 1946, he had already had four of his kids. He was pastoring a small rural church. And uh, people in that area back in the 40s were poor, but especially a Baptist preacher was poor. And one day, he and my grandma woke up, and they realized the toilet was broken in their, in their home, in the parsonage. 
And so they had breakfast, and they did what they always did after breakfast. They went and had devotions together. They were reading the word, and they were praying. And they were praying that God would supply what they needed. They needed their toilet fixed, and they were just praying for that very practically. Literally, while they were praying, there was a knock at the door. Can't make this stuff up. There's a man standing there, and he said he could no longer afford lodging, and he was wondering if he could sleep on their couch, and he could help out around the place if they needed any help. And my grandfather said, of course you can have a place to stay here in the parsonage. What can you do? And the guy said, well, I'm a plumber. <laughs> so my grandparents knew this was an answer to their prayer, and the guy fixed the toilet. Now, it just so happens that the man, the plumber who came to the door, was African-American. And they had him stay, and they fixed the toilet. And about a week later, my grandfather got a strongly worded letter from his elders. And they were challenging him on allowing a black man to sleep in the parsonage. And it was so strongly worded that he and my grandmother were so troubled that they went back to prayer. And once again, as they were praying, God sent a message. Their phone rang. And it was a small Baptist church near Grand Ledge, Michigan, asking if he would come and candidate to be a pastor there. And they received that as a, as a sign that it was time to leave their church where they'd gotten in trouble for having a black man sleep in their home. And they moved up to Michigan. That's why I'm from Michigan, because of this story, literally. I'm proud of my grandpa for doing that, and interestingly, after they moved to Michigan, my grandpa didn't learn his lesson from the elders. They kept having people come stay in their home, and there's a, actually a one woman that they ended up adopting. She's from Thailand, and she's my aunt now, and so my grandparents just kept doing what they do. You see, he preached the gospel every Sunday. I've seen his old sermon notes. He's very clearly preached the gospel, but he also looked for places in his world where he could raise up the valleys and bring down the mountains. He could make straight the crooked paths for people who were being unjustly treated. And the Holy Spirit calls all of us to do the same. I don't know what situations you have in your life, but as we prepare, as we wait for the Lord, we can do some work like my grandfather did, like John the Baptist calls us to. I was wondering, Lord, what might I be able to do? And I was, earlier this week, I was telling the story of my grandpa, just to a couple of people. I told the whole story, and one of the listeners was a woman of color. She got done hearing my whole story, and she had a question for me. She said, what happened to the guy? What happened to the plumber? And I said, you know, I've actually never thought about that. And I'll tell you, I felt really convicted in that moment that I have more to do. I go about my life as a white male, and I honestly, I rarely think about what happened, what happens to the people of color in my world. So I felt convicted. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Nathan, you have work to do in this regard. You can hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord as you wait for Jesus to come back, make straight his path. 
that every valley would be filled, every mountain made low, and the crooked place shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I love this instruction, and I love the way the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I hope he's convicting you a little bit too right now, to think of ways, big and small. Maybe it's personal. You know somebody who's being treated unjustly. Maybe it's systemic. You know, we have a lot of positions of power in this town. Maybe there's ways the Holy Spirit can invite us to make some crooked paths straight. You realize what happens when we do that, right? Look at the promise here. When we wait on the Lord, preparing his way, making crooked paths straight, look at the promise at the end. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's, that's how we usher him back, you see? We sang it earlier in that song. I love the way Anna picks out songs. The Holy Spirit was leading. Chains be broken. Lives be healed. Eyes be opened. Christ is revealed. It starts with chains being broken. Some of us have some chains we can break in the lives of people around us. We have some people we can make straight their path. We can fight for justice while we preach the gospel. And when we do that, we will be preparing the way for the coming king of salvation. Amen.